What is the secret to happiness? It's safe to say that everyone wants to be happy. We order our lives in the pursuit of happiness. We give ourselves to the things which we believe will maximize our happiness. These pursuits of happiness are entirely subjective on the individual. What makes you happy may not make your neighbor happy. For example, you might be happy if you got a new job or if you got a new dog. Everyone's happiness is contingent upon what they believe will bring them to the state of happiness in which they pursue. Friend, I hope you would think about this question. Just pull it out in front of your mind. Think on it. What will make you happy? Perhaps it would be that the sermon would be shorter. That would make you entirely happy. Maybe happy every week. I don't know. Perhaps it would be winning the lottery. Perhaps it would be to retire. A whole host of things that we might give ourselves to consider our happiness and our children getting their lives together. Our children being blessed. Our families doing well. Our marriages successful. Perhaps for you, happiness is simply that you would achieve the goals that you've set out for your life. What makes you happy? This is what we want to think about this morning in Psalm 1. The psalm begins with the word happy and happiness. Jesus, as He preached in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5, begins His sermon with happy is the one. Happiness is central to our human experience as God created us. Well, as we think about that this morning, I want us to set the context of what we're really doing. So over the next several months, we're going to be in the Psalter or the Psalms. There's 150 of them, and let me encourage you to give your life to the study of them. They can easily be divided by 30, 150 divided by 30, so you have enough psalms to take up really pretty much half of the year and more. This series I've titled, The Songbook of the Church. John Calvin called the book of the psalm an autonomy of all parts of the soul. On autonomy of all parts of the soul. In other words, in the Psalter, you will be confronted with every single human experience and every single human emotion. When you come to the Psalms, you will find the good and the bad. You will find Psalms of joy and rejoicing and Psalms that end without hope. Thus is the human experience. Thus it is the covenant people of God. We experience really, really good times and fruitful seasons that are blessed. And then there's other times where we wonder if God even cares. If God even knows. Does God even involve Himself with my life? Over this next several months, we will consider various aspects of the Christian life as we consider these psalms. 
Much of what I've done in organizing this is to take you through, really, our worship service. See, we've ordered our worship service around the Bible. Not around uh, human ingenuity, but around the Bible. And you see, God cares how He is worshipped. You might say, well, what's an example of God caring how He's worshipped? Well, I think of Aaron and the golden calf. When Moses was up on Mount Sinai meeting with God, the people began to grumble and worry that they were not appeasing God. And so, they made a golden calf. And you might know this story. And you thought, you thought that story, and perhaps you were taught that that story was about idolatry. And partly it is. But the real main idea of that is that the people of God had given themselves over to pragmatism. And they had decided that they would approach God the way they thought. And so they created a God in their image. And we know that the devastating effect, when they approached God in their way, they ultimately died. And there's countless stories in the Old Testament that God's people, when they give over to pragmatism, they die. And so it is for us as Christians. And so we do and order our lives according to the Scriptures. And this is what we find right here out of the gate in Psalm 1. Really, Psalm 1 and 2 is the the gatekeepers of the rest of the Psalter. It is the beginning. It sets the stage for everything that is to follow. Seeking to communicate that God is sovereign over life, and that there are only two ways to live. We can reduce our lives into two experiences, two roads, two ways, two paths. Either follow God or follow self. Every human life that has ever existed falls into one of two categories. Either we are like Abel and follow God, or we are like Cain and follow self. Either we go our way and we are king and make the decisions, or God is king, Psalm 2. It really is our choice. One, as we'll see this morning, leads to life, and the other is a road to death. My friend, I invite you to turn to Psalm 1, page 448 in the Pew Bibles provided. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, take that one home. If it's got some scuffs on it, look around for a better one, but take it home, read it, And get to know God through it. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Friend, this psalm presents to you this idea. That there truly are only two ways to live. The psalmist does not describe for the reader. The congregation does not sing that there is a middle way, a neutral way, but that there is only two ways. One way leads to life and the other to death. That the pathway to true and abiding happiness is through delight in and obedience to the Word of God. That the way to true and abiding happiness is by delighting in and obeying God's Word. And so the purpose of our time this morning is to find joy through obedience. To find happiness through obedience. This is a counter-cultural idea. Regardless if you're in America or any other Western or Eastern, whether you're present in 2023 or there in the nation of Israel 4,000 years ago, The truth is, we believe that obedience leads to sadness. But the Bible teaches that that obedience leads to lasting joy. You could say it this way, a holy life leads to a happy life. A life lived in obedience to the Word of God will lead to happiness. This is what we want to think about this morning. So if you take notes, there are only two points. Because there's two ways to live. The way of wisdom and the way of folly. You can choose this morning your own path. God gives you the choice this morning to choose the road of wisdom or the road of folly. It is freely your choice today. We'll see first in verses 1 through 3, the way of wisdom. Follow God and be blessed. If you choose the way of wisdom, you will choose the way of following God. And and as a result, you will be blessed. Or perhaps this morning you'll choose the way of folly. Follow yourself. And you will be dead. These are the 
stark contrast we want to consider this morning. Number one, the way of wisdom. The psalmist begins by saying, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Now, this is Old English. He's not thinking of men, males, but man generically, humans. So your Bible might say, blessed is the person, right? thinking of humanity. Blessed is the person. Perhaps your translation says, happy is the person. Blessed, again, is one of those old English words we don't usually go around using often in our regular day-to-day language. But the word happy communicates something much broader and bigger than even this older word blessed means. First consider here in Psalm 1 that the blessed man is said to have delight. We see a correlation between happiness and delight. You delight in that which brings you happiness. Throughout the Psalter, the Authors will use this word blessed to mean happy. Even in 1 Kings 10, we see the use, happy are your men, happy are your servants who obey the word of wisdom. One of the things we will come to find as we study the Psalms is there is a connection between happiness and obedience. That the blessed life is the happy life. Not happy meaning a smile on our face and a good feeling, an emotion. But rather a steadied position. Where regardless if there is a sun shining outside or dark thunderclouds, there is a settled conviction that God is good. And trustworthy. Well, we see here in verses 1 and 2, three characteristics of a happy man. Notice first, a happy man, a blessed man, ignores the advice of the wicked. The author uses three verbs to describe in a perfect sense, in a holistic sense, a progression Over time, notice with me the three, walk, stand, and sit. He begins with this negative picture of what a blessed man is not. To say it positively, he ignores the advice of the wicked. He doesn't listen to their calls to disobedience. Number one, he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. The word to walk means to literally be on a road to follow after. He's continuing this word picture in our mind of two paths. There's, you can either walk on the road to folly or you can walk on the road of godliness. The counsel of the wicked are, are those who are giving advice to the man and telling him how to live his life contrary to the revelation that is in the Scriptures. It's listening to the world and what the world thinks life should be like rather than finding the basis of your understanding of what goodness is from the Creator. 
And we understand why this is so dangerous when we abandon the Creator to listen to the creature. Because of the depravity of man, the advice that we get from the world is going to be broken and fallen. It is not going to be wise advice. In order to get wise advice, we have to go to the unadulterated, infallible Word of God and there find the path to life. So he does not walk in the way of wickedness. Nor does he stand in the way of sinners. Here it is again. You see the word, the way. He's again on a road. And here he's standing on the same road, the same way, the same path as sinners. The picture here is that of a pattern of living that is informed by sin rather than by holiness. A life patterned by darkness rather than light. Proverbs 4.14 says, Do not set foot on the path of wickedness. Do not proceed in the way of the evil one. Avoid it. Don't travel on it. Turn away from it and pass it by. The psalmist here paints a picture, warning, danger ahead. If you go on this road, there is only one ultimate destination, and that is death. But the blessed man is a man who, who avoids that. He says, no, I'm not going on that road. No, I'm not listening to the advice of sinners. No, my life will not be patterned after the wickedness around me, but my life will be patterned around the Word of God and by the saints that surround me. So he doesn't walk, he doesn't stand, and nor does he sit. Sit in the seat of scoffers? What's a scoffer? It's someone who constantly derides the Word of God. Someone who mocks God's revelation. Who laughs at it. Similar here to Psalm number 2 used to speak of, of God. He, he laughs from heaven. The Lord holds them in derision. He, he sort of laughs at them in a, in a sense of like, who do you think you are? This is the same scorn that sinners have of God. The reason why the holy man does not sit in this seat and does not join in the scoffing because the mockers are those who despise the divine. Friend, all you have to do is open your phone, turn on your television, and you will see an entire community, an entire nation scoffing at the clear revelation of God's Word. And the question before you is why do you want to be like them? Why do you want to join in with their debauchery? Why are you and I so tempted to be like the world? 
Brothers and sisters, we must ignore their wicked advice lest they lead us down their way. Now to be clear here before we move on, this does not mean that we have no association with wicked people. So, so the Bible is not calling us to a holy huddle, all right? You know, where we just kind of come in here, we hunker down, and we isolate ourselves from the world. That, that's not the idea. Jesus says, Father, I do not take them out of the world, but I pray that you keep them from the world. What does that mean? It means that we live in the world, but that we are not influenced by the world. But Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians, I believe, bears here in our text. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Friend, who are you listening to? Where do you get your life advice from? What are you pattering in your own life? Is it the Word of God or is it the people around you? And so negatively, we we see here that the happy man is one who ignores the advice of the wicked. But then look positively, verse 2. But, in contrast, his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. The law of the Lord. The word there is the Torah. The first five books of the Bible. You know, we, we often kid and joke about some of those books in, in the beginning of the Bible. But isn't this a stark picture to that mockery that we often have of the book of Leviticus? The book of Numbers and Deuteronomy? This happy man finds delight in the law. Not because the law is a taskmaster, because the law is a revelation of God's character. It's a revelation of who God is and what is right and what is wrong. I believe that the love for God's Word precedes the ability to study God's Word. You're not going to study something that you don't first love. Do you love God's Word? Do you delight in it? I mean, think of the picture that is being painted here, a delight in. It's like, oh, the way I hear from some Christians, it's, it's like drudgery. Like, oh, it's, i got to read my Bible. Really? You, you must, we must be reading two different things. You must have a different book than the one that I have. Because the psalmist here says that it is a delight to meditate on, to to consider. Friend, if you don't have a desire for God's Word, I think first and foremost I would pray that God would give you such a desire. I would recognize also that the study of God's Word is a means of grace. The psalmist in Psalm 19 says this, I rejoice in the way revealed by your decrees as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Friend, wrestle with that truth. 
If, if you were offered a million dollars or the study of God's Word for a lifetime, I want you to honestly reflect on which you would really choose. I fear some of us would choose the million dollars cash rather than the, this life-giving Word that will help us get to eternal treasure in heaven. Do you delight in the Word of God? Delight means to study, to know, to understand better. Friend, you will not come to know God any other way. You can stare at the stars at night. You can do all the fishing you want to do. But none of those things will bring you closer to God. He meditates, we're told, day and night. To meditate on the Word of God is is not like we would think about it today in a sort of Eastern context, you know, to kind of go quietly and to think about it. But to meditate literally means to allow it to saturate our mind. To have our minds informed by God's Word rather than the voices around us. As we all confessed earlier in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, that the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. You cannot obey something you don't ever study. You cannot grow to know Christ if you do not feast on Christ in His Word. John Calvin says it this way, God is only rightly served when His law is rightly obeyed. Obedience is the blessed life. Submission to the Word of God. Friend, it begins by knowing it, by meditating on it daily. Friend, that's why we want to carve out in our life a regular time where we spend reading the Bible. There, there's a whole host of Bible reading plans out there you could use. I would just commend you to pick a book in the Bible and just read it every day until you know it and understand it. More importantly, you apply it. One of the areas that you can incorporate in your life is Bible memory. You might say, well, friend, I don't have a, a good memory. I, I don't remember things well. Trust me. Just the process will help saturate your soul in the Word of God. Even if you don't remember anything, I guarantee you it will affect you. If you want to know more about that, you can just Google Andy Davis Bible Memory. And uh, Pastor Andy Davis, pastor of First Baptist Durham, North Carolina, will have a wonderful plan for your life to help you memorize the Bible. Friend, we want to cultivate in our life not merely knowing facts about God, but submitting our life to the Word of God. This is what we see in verse 3. That a man who gives himself, a woman who gives herself to these things is pictured here like a, a tree that is nourished and growing. Notice here that this tree is planted by streams of water. 
It doesn't just randomly pop out. No, no, it's, it's put itself, someone has planted it, placed it in the very place it needs to be to receive the nourishment that it needs. Friend, you will not know God by happenstance. You have to plant yourself in the life-giving Word. And notice here that when one gives themselves over to the meditation of the Word, in obedience to the Word, then fruitfulness comes. We have a lot of fruitless trees because we have a lot of trees that are not planted in the Word. They're planted in the world. And that's why you have no fruit in your life. Because you don't give yourself to the Word. You don't obey the Word. You can't grow spiritually if you're not plugged into the life-giving Spirit revealed through the Word. Notice that the man is healthy and growing. In all that he does, we are told, he prospers. Now friend, of course, the psalmist is not painting this sort of smiley, sunny day life that, that some confuse the Christian life to be. But friend, difficulty is going to come. Sorrow is going to come. The storms of life are going to come, but the roots are deep. A tree is not going to be easily blown over. It's not going to be tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of false doctrine. This is what the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 warned the church there in Ephesus. That the church of the, of the living God, the bride of Christ, might be built up by the knowledge of the Son of Man to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Why? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful seams. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. Friend, where and what are you drinking? Are you drinking up the wisdom of the world? Or are you drinking up the life-giving Word? No one can prosper and flourish apart from God's Word. This is what the psalmist makes clear. That the way of God, the way of wisdom, is the way of delighting in through obedience to the Word of God. Well, if this is the way of life, there must be another way. And we see in verses 4 and 6 the way of folly. Here we are painted a picture of one who follows themselves and as a result dies. If the blessed man is one who is flourishing, notice here verse 4, the, the wicked man is one who is dry and rootless and useless. Perhaps they have a temporary appearance of fruitfulness, but ultimately is driven away. The psalmist uses the simile, they are like chaff that the wind drives away. When you harvest barley, wheat, it is threshed, thrown up in the air, and the trash falls to the ground, or it's blown away. It's, it has no root, it has no value, it is weightless, it just blows away, it's literally useless trash. 
No one gathers it up. No one keeps it. No one says, hey, I might need that later. No, it just goes away. The winds of life drive away these deceptive appearances. The psalmist goes on to say that that those who follow the way of folly ultimately are under divine judgment. Verse 5, we are told, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Those who follow the way of folly, we are told in this text, will not stand in the judgment. In other words, when God's wrath is poured out upon those wicked, rebellious sinners, they will not be able to withstand it. It will blow over them and they will be crushed by it. There's nothing that they can do, nowhere they can hide from the heat of God's wrath. They thought that they were on the way of prosperity. They thought they were on the way of happiness and goodness. But they were on the way to destruction. The great divide between the holy and the wicked is that they will stand, or we will stand, and the wicked will perish. We are told also that that they will not stand in the centers of the congregation of the righteous. Jesus prepares us for this reality in the church. There will always be goats and there will always be sheep. And there will be goats within our congregation. This is one of the sad realities of our fallen world. We'll never have a pure church this side of heaven. But the psalmist warns here in this text that though the sinner was able to hide out among the sheep that in eternity he or she will be exposed. And I am convinced in my reading of Scripture that when we turn up in heaven we will be surprised who's there and who's not there. And let that be a warning to you. That though you fooled everyone in this room, you have not fooled the one true and living God who you will have to stand before in judgment unless you repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Lest you stop your way of destruction and and follow Christ, you too will face the judgment that is described in this text. Ultimately, those who follow the way of folly are dead men walking, the Bible says. Notice this horrific text. It is both wonderful and glorious, but it is also horrid. Verse 6, look at it. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord knows the righteous. He knows who are His. He knows the sheep. Jesus said, I know my own and my own know me. My sheep hear my voice. When I say, come and follow me, they come and follow Him. That's what they do. 
But those who follow folly, those who listen to the whispers of the evil one, oh, they go down a road too. And it is a broad road, Jesus says. It's a nice road. It's a comfortable road. It is a lot of sweet, wonderful things. And, and friend, look around the prosperous things that this world offers. in eternal death. Would you really exchange the poultry and the fleeting pleasures of sin for the eternal glory that is to be revealed at the coming of Christ Jesus? Brothers and sisters, let us guard our hearts from the way of folly by knowing the life-giving Word of God. The the choice is yours. It it is your choice. No one in this room will will be able to make that decision for you. I can't do it. The deacons can't do it. Uh, The leaders and Sunday school teachers can't do it. Your parents can't do it. You have to do it. Will you choose the way of folly or the way of wisdom? Will you choose to follow God or will you choose to follow self? Brothers and sisters, we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and were by nature children of wrath. We went on from bad to worse. We were darkened in our understanding. We were fools. You know, truly, Jesus is the only man who lived a life that is described in Psalm 1. If your response has been, there is no way I can obey Psalm 1. If that's where your mind has been leading you, amen. It has led you to life. You see, Jesus is the only one who could be considered the man who never walked in the counsel of the wicked. When tempted by the evil one, he resisted the temptation. At every turn as the evil one spoke into him and sought to counsel him, when Peter stood in opposition to him, he says, depart from me, devil. Get out of my way. I'm on a way of wisdom, you see. He never mocked one of God's God's laws. He never even mocked one of God's people. Even when they mocked at Him, He never, we are told in the Scriptures, mocked and derided in response. But prayed for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus bore on the cross the judgment that this psalmist says the wicked justly and rightly deserves. Jesus was the one who did not stand in the congregation because He bore the weight of God's wrath. He became sin, the Bible says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. He stood where we fall. He was cast from the congregation of the righteous that we might be included in it. He perished. That we might live. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us repent and flee to the one, this blessed man, who will give us eternal life. Believe in him and trust in him by faith. 
and you too can be happy forever. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would know Jesus, know him in a saving way, that we would not know you as judge, but as Savior. And Father, help us to submit our lives to your word, to in the words of Jesus, take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow him. Aid us, we pray, by your spirit to obey your word, to live a life of lasting happiness through obedience to your word. Oh, Father, we pray that you would do this, I for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As our, as our deacons and ushers come to prepare for the Lord's Supper, I want to read to you a passage from the passage we often use in 1 Corinthians. Excuse me. And as I read this, I, I want you to, to hear Paul's instructions When we think about the table, Christians historically have used the word that as pastors and elders, they are to fence the table. You say a fence, like, a, like something you put in my backyard? Yes. So that, so that the wrong person doesn't get to it. That's why you put a fence up, right? To keep your neighbors out. That's why you put locks in your house to keep your neighbors out. You may say, well, where does this idea come from? Why would you restrict somebody from the table? Well, the idea comes from the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself or herself, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Therefore, this morning, we understand that this is a Christian ordinance. This has been commanded by Jesus to be done by Christians. If you don't understand yourself to be a Christian this morning, we are thankful that you've gathered with us. If you do not self-consciously understand that you are following the Jesus that we've talked about today, then we would encourage you to let the, pay, the plate pass as, it's, as it goes by. Essentially, what we're doing is helping you have a lighter judgment day because you did not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. Secondly, if you understand yourself to be a Christian this morning, but you are in unrepentant sin, perhaps you've 
hurt or offended someone and you've not gone to them and confessed your sin, then let me encourage you to allow that plate to pass, lest you reap judgment upon yourself. The Bible is clear that we must not be flippant about what we are about to do. This is a, a holy ordinance. This is something that should be important to each one of us. And we ought to examine ourselves, confessing our sins and, and our need of Christ. If you do understand yourself to be a Christian, but you're not a member of our church, well, friend, you are welcome if you've been baptized as a believer and you're a member of a local church, that doesn't mean locally here in Avon Park, it could be, you know, anywhere, where they preach the same gospel you heard today, so it doesn't have to be the same denomination, but you understand yourself to be right with the Lord, then you're welcome to feast with us this morning. As the plate is passed, let those words of the Apostle Paul just encourage you to activity. Use it as a time to examine like going to the doctor, you, you get you know, your blood pressure checked and your blood work done. You, you know, it's a spiritual checkup is what we're doing. Have I been following Christ? Let this be an occasion to confess where you have failed to follow Him and a resolve to follow after Christ in the days and weeks ahead until we convene again to feast on the table. Let's pray. Father, as we come, we do so with a palpable sense of our own unworthiness and humility as we consider these elements, symbols that point us to the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ on Calvary's cross, where Christ there, His body was broken in our place. We deserve the cross, but He went in our stead, as we examine the cup and consider the blood that was shed, for your word tells us without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sin. And that blood was shed once for all that we might be holy and right with you. Oh Lord, we marvel at this work among us. Change us and shape us by it, we pray for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.